You can turn to Genesis. You're welcome to. I'm going to go to Luke. And uh, you can write Luke down if you want, because we're going backwards to Genesis. But I want to read Luke for us this morning and pray that the Lord would make uh, the end, his return, um, more in the forefront of our minds this morning. Uh, We're going to look at a very familiar story, uh, Noah and the flood in Genesis 6. Uh, But this is a, a story that we so often look backwards at. This way is backwards for you. We look backwards at uh, but the flood was uh, to help us look forwards. That's what the New Testament tells us. Uh, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus notes uh, the flood in the days of Noah. In Luke chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. That is, the, uh, the, the day when the Son of Man, Jesus himself, would return. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. He uses another example that we find later in Genesis in verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Listen, verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your help this morning uh, in a a season of weakness myself, uh, but I'm thankful that uh, myself as a preacher, our church as a congregation are founded on Christ, on your Son and his sacrifice and resurrection. Uh, We are founded on your word uh, that is uh, powerful living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and I'm thankful that we can look to you uh, for guidance and direction this morning, that we would uh, be challenged this morning in light of a very familiar story to consider the end and to realize that you will return. And we don't know when that will be, but we ought to be prepared. We ought to put our faith and trust in you, repenting of our sins and trusting that you alone are the one that saves. So help us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, now back to Genesis 6. All right, hopefully you have your fingers still there. Uh, we have been working through this, uh, this big book, but a smaller section of this book in Genesis 1 through 11. And we just got to a a section a few weeks ago where uh, mankind had been multiplying on the face of the earth. And as mankind multiplied on the face of the earth, wickedness 
multiplied on the face of the earth. And as wickedness multiplied on the face of the earth, judgment from the Lord was going to be multiplied on the face of the earth. But we ended our time with Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, where Moses, who's writing the book of Genesis, records these words, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In a time when there would be great judgment for the sins of the world, uh, Moses highlights that Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't deserve it, but he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this story is a story of God's grace. And, and it is. It's a very familiar story, story. And to be honest with you, many of us probably learned um, aspects of this story that aren't really the most important aspect of the story. And, and we made light of the story. We learned all about these different animals and this, that, or the other that came onto the ark, and we didn't learn anything about judgment and sin and salvation. And, and so this morning, I want us to do that well. Parents, when you are reading this story to your kids in your kids' Bible, you're going to have to do some gospel insertion into some of those kids' Bibles because so many of them are, are just about lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and all of these kinds of things, but not about what this story is really about. And yet my wife found a, a book uh, this week, and it, it has lots and lots of pictures, um, and very few words, but it had this poem in it, translated from the 1500s, maybe 1600s, by a guy named Jacobus Revius, which those of you who are looking for names, and there's several of you, write it down, Jacobus Revius, a Dutch Reformed theologian. He writes this great poem, I wish I had time, but Casey's got to leave early this morning, so I'm just going to read the end of, our, of this poem. Uh, so that we can see God's hand in salvation, okay? It says, All that walked, crawled or stalked, on dry earth found a birth, a bed. Worst and best stayed on shore, were no more. The whole host gave the ghost. They were killed for the guilt, which brought all to the fall. And later on, it was done, back on land, through God's hand, who forgave and did save, the Lord's grace be the praise. That Dutch Reformed theologian in the 1600s understood what Noah's Ark was really about, that it was about our sin and guilt that rightly should be judged by God. And yet God showed his saving grace towards Noah and his family uh, to be able to save mankind uh, in, in the future. This story, we often talk about it as Noah and the flood, and it is. It's a story about Noah and the flood, but it's really a story about God. Uh, as we're reading through these passages, look at who is the initiator. Who's speaking? Who's describing? Who's acting? Who's doing all of these things? It's God. 
It's God who speaks. It's God who commands. God is the initiator in this. It's God who gives the instructions. It's God who sends the rain. It's God who shuts the door. It's God who takes the rains away, as we'll see in the coming weeks. This is a story about God's salvation for us. It's a story, really, up to this point, as we saw in Genesis chapter 6 in the early part, as sin began to multiply, uh, judgment began to multiply, in these verses that we're going to look at, as they build all the way up to chapter 8, it's, it's really a de-creation. This is what some uh, of the commentators have described the first part of the flood as, as we're familiar with now more than maybe before the story of creation and God speaking life and separating the waters from the sky, from the waters below. This is a story almost going backwards, decreating what he had already created so that he can recreate afresh in the future. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I hope you are, I want to point out a few things uh, that I think would be helpful notes for you to remember later this week. And the first one is this. In verses 9 through 12, what we see is Noah's faith and the earth's corruption. Noah's faith and the earth's corruption. That's, what, that's what's highlighted in, in verse 9 and 10 is Noah's faith. It says, these are the generations of Noah. If you've been with us, you may recognize those words, they've been bookmarkers, uh, starting new sections in the book of, of Genesis. Uh, and, and you'll see more of them as we finish our study in Genesis. And if you continue reading those, you'll see those bookmarkers. These are the generations of Noah. So Moses is starting a new section in this book of Genesis, and he uh, highlights that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a righteous man. We, we saw just in the, the last verse of the last section of Genesis, in chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and we talked that that was grace, that Noah was no better necessarily. He himself was sinful but the Lord showed grace to him. The Lord poured out his unmerited favor upon Noah. And so here we read another description of him is that he was righteous. Does that mean that he was perfect? Does that mean that he didn't do anything wrong? Does that mean here it says also that he was blameless, that he walked with God? We find, even later, the New Testament helps us to understand these verses where in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says that it was by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness. He became an heir 
of the righteousness that comes by faith. The New Testament helps us understand how Noah was righteous. His righteousness was not something that he had in and of himself. You don't have, I don't have a righteousness in and of myself, but by faith, by faith in, in God, by faith for Noah in a coming Savior, for us living in 2021, by faith looking back, backwards in Jesus Christ as that Savior, we are given Christ's righteousness. We are, like it says of Noah, our heirs. We have an inheritance from the Lord, and it's Christ's righteousness upon our life. Because if the Lord looked at just Noah by himself, he would fall short as well, just like we all fall short. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was true of Noah. And yet by faith, with reverent fear, he inherited God's righteousness. And so when God looked at him, when Moses described him, he he described him like he will describe Abraham later on in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so Abraham himself was like Noah. They believed and the Lord credited it to him. They inherited the Lord's holiness and righteousness. And so they became blameless before the Lord. Um, Blameless, saved, justified before the Lord. And the Bible plays that out. You can read throughout the entire Bible and see that it is by faith that someone is declared righteous or blameless before the Lord in his judgment. Noah is also described as walking with God, which uh, that may sound familiar from his great-grandfather Enoch, who walked with the Lord. Um, Verse 24, but there Enoch, it says that he walked with God and then he was not. The Lord took him to be with him forever in heaven. Here Noah walks with the Lord, but he's left. And he's left because he has a job to do. He has a job, a work to do that the Lord is going to give him. And he is going to be uh, the recipient of God's grace, but also the messenger of God's grace in the end. Noah is not only responsible for bringing about salvation for himself and his wife and his kids and his, his son's wives, but he's the one to then share the truth of God's grace and salvation afterwards to be able to pass that on. And so that's Noah's description that Noah himself uh, was declared righteous and blameless by faith. But let's look at the other description that we have here. That's of the earth's corruption. That's in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Did you hear anything repeated? Corrupt. Corrupt, corrupt. Uh, Moses isn't giving us any leniency to be able to uh, read into 
this description anything else than corruption, that, uh, that there is violence among the people, that there is really nothing good that is coming out of these people, out of this generation that Noah finds himself in. And in fact, that word corrupt helps us then to understand what's about to take place. Because the word that Moses uses uh, when the Lord says he's going to destroy the earth is the same word as corrupt. So essentially, God is going to destroy those who have destroyed themselves. He's going to bring to ultimate corruption those who have already corrupted themselves. And we often look at this story, and, and people might even question and say, why? Why would God do that? Seems so harsh. Seems so evil. Why, if He's a loving God, why would He destroy the whole earth with a flood? It's because mankind already destroyed the whole earth on their own. He was just bringing about an ultimate quick destruction in that 40 days of rain there on the earth. And so this is not God's fault. This is mankind's fault, and we need to remember that. That's why this story starts highlighting the faith of Noah that leads to righteousness, uh, blameless, blamelessness before the Lord, the grace of God upon Noah that enabled him to walk with the Lord compared to the corruption on the earth that leads to the ultimate corruption, uh, destruction of the earth. So let's remember that. That's the opening setting. That's uh, how Moses describes this. And then we begin to get into the familiar story of the flood. And it starts, though, with a very uh, harsh word in verse 13. If you're taking notes, I want you to note in this section, finishing out chapter 6, God's promise of judgment and covenant of salvation. God's promise of judgment first, and then God's covenant of salvation in the end. In verse 13, it starts, it says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Remember, it was all flesh that had corrupted themselves earlier. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy. There's that word for corrupt. I, I will destroy them with the earth that they have made corrupt. And, and then he gives instruction. He gives this, this judgment very clearly in verse 13 verse 13, and then he begins to give instructions. But before those instructions, I, I just want to uh, have you consider for a second w what's happening here in this, in this moment. God determined to give them up to what they wanted. They had wanted their own lives, and God had given them up to that. God had determined to uh, allow themselves to to destroy themselves. And, and I thought this week about Romans chapter 1 in verse 18 through 21 where Paul, in writing to the, the believers in Rome uh, about the Lord because of the earth's, because of mankind's decision to choose to live their lives as they saw fit, he said that he gave them up to what they wanted. 
in the end. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Just like here in Genesis chapter 6, the wrath of God, the judgment of God from heaven. Against, in, in Romans, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is true of the time of the days of Noah. This is also true in the first century to the people of Rome. This is true of us now. What can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to them and to us. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. He goes even before the flood in the things that have been made. So he says of mankind, so they are without excuse. Days of Noah, they were without excuse. First century, they were without excuse. 2021, we are without excuse when we consider the final judgment uh, in the end that Jesus pointed us towards in Luke 17. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he goes on three different times, and he teases these out more, but he says, therefore God gave them up. A little bit later, for this reason, God gave them up. And a little bit later down, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. You see, this is what happened in the flood. This is what happened in Paul's day and age. This is what's still happening now. For what can be known about God is plain to them, and, and yet God is not going to force anyone to, to come His way, to turn, to repent of their sins. He's urging all to do so, but He's not forcing you. And that can be one of the scariest things right there, the Lord giving you up to your, your desires, the Lord giving you up to your ways. That's why the Bible describes discipline. The Bible describes the Lord's discipline and His um, strict hand against you as His love and His mercy towards you, His care for you. He doesn't want you to continue on that way. So He disciplines you. This is one of the worst things, the Lord giving you up to those things. And that's what He does, though, that for so long they wanted to corrupt themselves, and so He gave them up to ultimate corruption there. But God gives instructions, and these instructions are highlighted by this word, make. Listen to the instructions in verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you were to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Why? For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything 
that is on the earth shall die. And so you see this God's word, his, when he began to speak, it started with a word of judgment, ended with a word of judgment, but right in the middle were, were instructions for Noah on the way to be saved, on the way for his family to be saved. And it was to make, to make, to make, to make, to make instructions, detailed instructions, blueprints, in fact, for him to be able to find salvation. And, and he was to make this ark, make it out of gopher wood with rooms in it, cover it. And, and you begin to just think about him doing this um, that long ago without uh, his DeWalt power tools, you know, without uh, his cranes and hydraulics, uh, without all of those kinds of things. Uh, that's one of the reasons it probably took a hundred years for him to do this. Uh, we, we see that a little bit later that Noah finishes when he's 600 years old. It's because the, these instructions to obey them fully were going to take a lot of time. A lot of time. And yet, this word of judgment and right in the middle, this word of salvation were enough for Noah to be obedient in this. He heard of the judgment that was coming upon all flesh. He heard of the only way of salvation was to make an ark. And he was faithful for a hundred years in doing this, this thing. And if you open your kids' Bibles, you're going to see these pictures of beautiful ships. In fact, I don't know if the logo's up here. Grace drew a picture of a beautiful ark for us in our series uh, uh, of this. It is a beautiful ship. Is it, I, I didn't know if she, she doesn't want to put it up there. There we go. Look at that beautiful ark, okay? One of the commentators I was reading, though, uh, in fact, referenced Augustine thousands of years ago and, and said, Augustine said that this is, is not a ship like we would know it today, not like that beautiful ark that you would recognize there. It was a box, uh, more um, illustrative of a coffin. Just a box that was going to be able to float, not a ship that was going to be able to sail and do all of these sorts of things. It was, it was a box. It was the only source, though, of not death, but life uh, in the end. But there were detailed instructions that Noah was going to have to be o obedient to. And one of the things I want to highlight even in these instructions is the fact that uh, this ark, the only other place where that word is used, is used later on in Exodus when it describes the basket in which Moses was placed by his mother and then placed in the river. The basket in which uh, there as well, it was to be covered with pitch, a tar-like substance to make it waterproof so that it could float and, and protect and save the one that was in it. And uh, you see the imagery there that, that even in this ark, that it was the way of salvation. Moses, who's writing this, 
highlights the fact that he too himself was saved in an, a miniature ark uh, that was covered in pitch uh, that brought about not only his salvation, but also his family, his Jewish family, his Israelite family. Moses' salvation brought about the salvation of all of Israel later on, for Moses delivered Israel out of Pharaoh's hand. But it goes even beyond that, because the pitch, the tar-like substance that was to cover the ark, the word that is used for that covering is the word that will be later used in the sacrificial system to describe atonement, uh, our covering of our sins. It's where the Hebrews would get the word kapur uh, for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That covering, that pitch around the ark would uh, later point people to the covering that they can find in the shed by, by faith in the sacrificial system of the shed blood of animals for their sins. The only way for them to be saved is to be covered by the ju- from the judgment. The only way for Noah to be saved was to be covered by this ark and this pitch. The only way for Moses to be saved was to be covered by his ark and that pitch. The only way for the Israelites to be saved was to be covered. And that points us to Christ, does it not? Because when we think forward to the only way of salvation, it was Jesus Christ. He who was the better lamb, the ultimate lamb of God, who shed his own blood for the sins. For there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so this ark, yes, is a story about Noah so many years ago, but as we take the whole Bible that the Lord has given to us, We have the privilege of seeing how this idea of salvation, the only way of salvation, this atonement for our sins, um, traveling, um, giving us a trajectory all the way towards Jesus and the cross and His shed blood. But then if uh, those first verses up through verse 17 were about the Lord's judgment, the promise of judgment. In verse 18, then, we see this covenant of salvation. Excuse me. But I will establish, the Lord says, my covenant with you. After these words of destruction and the instructions to make this ark, God says, but I will establish. Who will? God will. I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you 
and for them. So God gives all of these now instructions not to just make the ark, but once you've made the ark, in a hundred years, mind you, in that day, I want you to take in with you, you, your wife, your sons and their wives, and two of every kind of animal that's on the earth so that I can save them, so that they can be kept alive through the judgment that is coming, through the flood that was going to come upon the earth. God is giving instructions of His way of, way of salvation, this covenant, this, this promise that the Lord was going to establish for them. And let's remember, there's no other way to be kept alive after the judgment except unless you're on the ark. And traveling forward through the cross, we understand that as well, that there is no way to be alive after the judgment when Christ returns except to be in Him. In Christ, uh, to put our faith in Him and have His righteousness imputed to us, to be heirs of that righteousness. There's no other way to be made alive. This is why the New Testament talks about heaven as eternal life and hell as eternal death. There's no way to be alive. This is true of Noah and the ark, this is true for all mankind. And we need to see this jumping off the, the pages for us uh, that, that we too would realize. And it, it makes those words of Jesus in Luke chapter 17 even more timely because we don't know when Christ will return. But if there's only one way, if there is a judgment, and there's only one way to escape the judgment, how much more so ought we to be faithful to the Lord, to do what He said, to repent of our sins, and to believe that Christ took the punishment for our sins upon the cross, to know that there is no salvation except through the cross, no salvation except through Jesus. And in the end, after all of those instructions to not only find salvation, it says in verse 22 that Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. This is just one of the many times it says that of Noah in these stories, that Noah did it. He did everything. 100 years of faithful obedience. Maybe the Lord spoke to him between Genesis 6 and Genesis 7. And gave him a few more details about the ark, how you're going to get those big logs up in the air, you know, like this, that, or the other. I don't know. But none of those words are recorded. We go from Genesis 6, flash forward 100 years to the next time the Lord speaks. And for 100 years, Noah is faithful. And it just made me think this week how quick I am to fall away from faithful obedience because I haven't heard a fresh word from the Lord uh, or, or because uh, I'm unsure of some of these other things that the, 
that the Lord would want me to do in this day and age. And so I don't necessarily obey all of these other things that are perfectly clear in His Word. It was just a challenge to me that myself and we as a church, we ought to be a people who are faithfully obedient to the Lord and His Word that He's made clear to us 2,000 years ago. As Graham rightly said this morning, and I think the call to worship, that the Lord has revealed Himself in creation, in His Word, but most importantly, in Christ. And we ought to be a people that are faithfully obedient to Christ and His Word for a hundred years. And that that would distinguish us, make us distinct from the rest of the world. And that we would trust Him in that. Let us be like Noah in that sense, in that by faith, we're made righteous in God's eyes, but our faith in the Lord, in His promise of judgment, and yet His covenant of salvation in Christ and the cross, it would lead us towards obedience, lead us towards following Him in everything that He has called us to do, to be holy as He is holy. Uh, to proclaim the gospel to all nations, uh, to be devoted to one another, to love one another, all of the commands in, in God's Word that we would be faithful. Why? Because He's promised that there would be a judgment in the end and that He is the only way of salvation. Why would we not follow Him? in His way of salvation, and follow His words to be able to enjoy not only eternal life there, but life to the full here. And Moses did. Moses did all that the Lord commanded him. Which leads to chapter 7 where the uh, last note for this morning that we see as Moses made the ark and was instructed once he made the ark to get into the ark, uh, now he's, 100 years later, he's going to be instructed to get into the ark. This is where God saves those who enter and he destroys those who don't. This really is the flood in Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 6 was preparation for the flood. But Genesis chapter 7 is the flood. God saves those who enter and he destroys those who don't. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. Why? For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Again, like we said, by faith. Verse 2, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, a male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. You, you may ask, why? well, why seven? Why, are there, uh, why is there an additional instruction here in the, in the last days that there should be seven rather than just, just two, seven pairs rather than just one pair? And even in the Lord's instruction, 
is the Lord's provision for worship in the future. Uh, even before, uh, a year before Noah would make an offering to the Lord, he told Noah to be obedient to take extra clean animals so that when he got off the ark, he would have something extra to be able to make sacrifice and an offering to the Lord. And that was, again, so many aspects in this this week as a challenge to me to, to, re, to remember that in the past, the Lord has given me all that I'm going to be asked by the Lord to give in the future, even today. Nothing you have wasn't already given to you by the Lord, everything that you have. And so that's why as Christians, we hold everything very loosely, and we give it all to the Lord so that whatever He asks from us in the future, we say, I mean, it's yours anyway. I, don't, I wouldn't have anything of it. And that's what Noah says in the end. He gets off the ark, and he makes an offering to the Lord with, with the very things that the Lord told him to take upon the ark. It's just such a, a neat aspect of the Lord's provision there. Because he goes on in verse 4, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And here it is again, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. A hundred years after building the ark and being faithfully obedient, seven days before the rains come, he hears another word from the Lord, and he says, get in the ark with all the animals I told you to get in. Get in. And Moses, again, just like he was for a hundred years, for seven days, he was faithful. He was obedient in light of the judgment that was coming, and it was made even more aware that its coming was soon. Right? The Lord made it very clear it was coming sooner, just like the Bible describes the end. There, there are going to be signs of the times when it's coming soon, and even more so then, you ought to be more faithfully obedient in, in, the, in those moments. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. We know that he was 500 years in chapter 5, verse 32. Uh, after he was 500 years, he fathered three sons. So that's why some say that it was 100 years of him being obedient to, to build this ark. Um, and in verse 7, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. There it is again. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Again, Moses is highlighting that God is saving those who enter into the ark of salvation, into that covenant of salvation, but he destroys those who, who don't. And then in verse 11, it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day, Moses writes, all the fountains of the great deep 
burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. This uh, is just an interesting note that Moses is like, yeah, I know what day it was when it happened. This has been passed on. This is not some myth, some fable that we say once upon a time in a land far, far away that this, you know, may have happened. No, Moses knows the exact day that this happened as it was passed along to him, saying this is an actual event. And, and if Moses thought this was an actual event, and the Israelites thought this was an actual event, we ought to believe that this was an actual event. And Luke chapter 17 that I read earlier helps us because even Jesus believed that this was an actual event. Because you'll find people that will say that this is just a myth or this is just a fable and it didn't really happen and this, that, or the other. And there's so many arguments out there regarding this. But Moses is recording here an actual calendar event, a day in which this happened, that, that this event was so meaningful and impactful for them, showing them how they ought to live, showing them the greatness of God and His salvation for them, that, that they would pass that on over and over and over. And, and even in that verse as well, we see that decreation that I mentioned earlier. You remember the language of the flood and, uh, or the, of creation, the, uh, the waters hovering over uh, the waters in Genesis chapter 1, and then the Lord separating the waters above in the sky from the waters below uh, where the earth uh, would form. Here, it's the water above and the waters below converging in the middle again on top of the earth to flood the earth. Uh, the Lord is decreating. He's going backwards in a sense. And it says, the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Again, not only is Noah faithfully obedient to do everything the Lord had commanded him for a hundred years. Not only was Noah faithfully obedient for seven days to himself go into the ark, but it, it's almost as if the language of this verse is saying that two of every animal in all the earth that was the breath of life was obedient to the Lord's words to come to Noah. And can you imagine wrangling this many animals on your own? I mean, think of, that's an, I can't wrangle, you know, my own kids sometimes and 
certain other little dogs that we're trying to watch, you know, for people. Uh, much less wrangling a safari of animals to try to get on. Noah had no problem wrangling animals. They were obedient to the Lord's words to come to him. Two of every single one. And they get on the ark. They enter into the ark. And there is this great statement at the end of verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. You Remember the door that Noah built? He must have built it a little too big. Because he himself was unable to shut it. This is essentially the Lord saying, uh, I'm the one who not only makes the way of salvation, I'm also the one who closes the way of salvation when the judgment comes. It's not only true of Noah and his day with the flood and the ark, but it's true of uh, all mankind in the end. When Christ returns, the door of salvation will be shut. Jesus himself likens himself to a door. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Anyone who entered into Noah's ark was saved, but everyone else was destroyed. The same is true in that Noah's uh, ark and flood are helping us to live in light of an even more ultimate judgment and destruction that are coming. Not one of water and flood, but of destruction by fire and judgment. And that Jesus himself says, I'm the door. Just like there was a door on the ark, and if you entered into it, you could be saved in the ark by the covering that was around it. Jesus says, I'm the door. And if you enter into me and my ark, my cross, and the blood that was shed, the covering that was made for you on that day, you can be saved. But the Bible describes that when Christ returns, that door will be shut. And there will be many who will want to come in. Many who Jesus even says will say, did we not know you? Did we not proclaim you? Did we not try our best? And Jesus said, I never knew you. You didn't enter in to me. You didn't come to me by faith. You didn't come repenting of your sins. You lived how you wanted, doing what you, your own desires. It, it made me consider Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this week in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, where Jesus commands, urges, begs a mountainside full of people he says, enter by the narrow gate, the narrow door, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction or corruption. And those who enter by that wide door 
that easy door, are many. Does that not describe the flood, the days of Noah? A a wide door, an easy way that leads to destruction. Many people are going, all but eight. Whatever the population is in Noah's day, minus eight are those who are going that easy way, that through that wide gate. But Jesus continues on, and he says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The way is hard, and the gate is narrow. That door on the ark was so small compared to the world in which they lived. So small, so hard. Living by faith is, in faithful obedience is hard, is it not? But those who know the greatness of God and the grace of God's salvation in Jesus Christ are willing to do the hard things, willing to be obedient for seven days, week after week after week, a hundred years for a lifetime. We're willing to do those things because we know what we've received. This this sentence, the Lord shut him in, is a sentence that also reminded me of Hebrews 12.1. Remember I told you it was the Lord who not only promised judgment, but he also made a covenant of salvation. He was the one who started and initiated salvation in this story, but he's also the one that finishes it in the end, isn't it? He's the one who gave the instructions for the door, and he's the one that shuts the door. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Noah being one of them, the writer of Hebrews says to the believers in the first century, and the Holy Spirit says to us today, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race, the race of faith that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter, the beginner and ender of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We ought to enter into Him before it's too late, before that door is shut. I wish I could tell you when it was happening. I wish I could give you a glimpse into the future, but I can't, and no one else can which is why the Bible says, the writer of Hebrews also says in quotes from Exodus today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts as you did in the past. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters 
Again, the waters prevailed so mightily, they increased so much on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Again, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering 15 cubits deep. The ark was 30 cubits tall. When it started floating, it probably floated 15 cubits deep in the water, and it didn't touch anything for a year. Saying, thinking then that the waters were at least 15 cubits then above the highest mountain. And all flesh died, just as God said, that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I mean, you could read that back in Noah's day, but you could also read that paragraph, it almost seems in Revelation, that everything will be blotted out, that everything will be sent to eternal destruction, eternal death in hell when the Lord returns. Only those who are in the ark of Christ were saved in the end. And they were on, the waters prevailed for 150 days. And then we get to 8, verse 1. I'm just going to read it and get you to the very edge of the cliff, cliffhanger, and we're going to come back next week. Look at verse, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. Peter writes in 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 5 says, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's Genesis 1. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's Genesis 6 and 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The story of Noah and the flood are not just to look backwards to a cute story with animals in a, in a pretty boat and a, a dove that finds an olive leaf of peace. The story of Noah and the flood are for us to realize that apart from the Lord, we're just as wicked as those people are there in the Lord's eyes. That apart from the Lord's help, there is no salvation. 
that apart from God intervening and God speaking and God acting and sending his one and only son to make a way of salvation, a door of salvation, we're lost. And there is another judgment that the story of the flood is to point us forward to realize that there's an even greater judgment. Do we realize that Noah and the flood, it was just a partial judgment God saved a little bit of everything, but there's going to be an ultimate judgment in the end, not one of water, but one of fire in which the world will be destroyed. And we ought to live in light of that. And the question we have then is, in that day, if Christ returns this afternoon, this week, this year, will what Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 be, be said of us. But God remembered Noah. That word remembered is not that the Lord forgot. It's that in that moment, the Lord acted on what he already knew. He, he came close. He drew near in that moment uh, for Noah, who by faith was made righteous. In that last day when Christ returns, will that be said of you? But God remembered Brian. But God remembered, insert your name. Will that be said? Because the only way that will be said of you is if you, like Noah, repent of your sin and by faith trust the Lord and His Word, and His way of salvation, His very own Son who gave Himself as our greater ark, gave His own blood as our greater pitch and covering. And you put your faith and trust in Him, and you walk by faith, which means you walk by obedience in everything that the Lord has. We don't walk by faith to earn anything. We walk by faith because we've been given everything already. It's just proof that we have put our faith and trust in Him. It's the only way that that will be said of you in the end. And so my encouragement to you is to do the very same thing that God's Word says is to repent and believe. Do not wait. Today, if you hear the Word of the Lord calling you to repent and believe in light of the coming judgment, respond. Do not harden your hearts as you've done in the past, as we've all done in the past. And Christian, let's live in light of the coming judgment. Let's live as if it's going to happen this afternoon. Let's knock on a door. Let's pick up the phone. Let's be obedient in that area that we haven't been. Let's strive in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's get in the Word while we have the opportunity. Let's enjoy. Let's not only look forward to the eternal life that we have. Let's enjoy this life that He has for us in these days. Let's, let's soak it up. Let's live in light of that coming judgment, knowing that there are going to be millions, billions who are going to be blotted out of the Lord's sight on that day. May that number be less because we've been intentional to know that we've been 
made one of his, and we live in light of that in hoping to make, make others one of his as well. Proclaiming the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, the one way. Let's pray. Father, leave us not in our comfort this morning. Let us be brokenhearted, poor in spirit, mourning over our own sin, knowing that we ourselves, we deserve the very same judgment that came upon the world during the days of Noah, the very same judgment that Noah deserved. But you showed grace to Noah. And God, you've shown grace to us who have believed. You've revealed to us our own corruption. And rather than giving us up to our corruption, you made us aware of it so that we might repent. And instead of being corrupted, we've been given life, righteousness, blamelessness. We have the opportunity to walk with you. God, let us walk like Noah walked, faithfully obedient because of your covenant of salvation. For the seven days of this week, or for the hundred years that you give us, let us walk faithfully obedient to you as an act of worship, knowing that there's no other way, there's no better way. And God, like Noah, may we bring others into the ark with us. May you use us to be the, the, the means of salvation, the, the words of salvation, the ministers of reconciliation and salvation, the messengers of the gospel so that others may enter into the ark because of us, because we've proclaimed the good news of salvation in Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone, according to your word alone. God, let us live in light of eternity, in light of your returning. We don't know when it will happen, and so let us live as if it could happen at any moment, aiming to be holy as you are holy, righteous as you are righteous, Jesus walking with you and seeking to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world. God, let us have as much a part of that as possible. Now pray, God, if there's someone here who's hearing you reveal yourself and they are beginning to recognize their own sinfulness recognizing that they too ought to be destroyed in the judgment if, if you were to return. I pray that they, this moment, would repent, be sorry, turn from their ways, and turn to Jesus, the only way of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.